and welcome to the Sim Racing Perspectives podcast for Sunday the 3rd of June 2018. I'm your host Davy Jones and I'm here with Mike from Sim Racing 604. Hello everyone. And thanks to Mike we have another special guest. We have Ferrari Man 601. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. You're welcome and thank you for joining. My pleasure. So Ferrari Man 601, first of all, I want to say thank you so much for joining us. Um, when Davey reached out to me uh, a couple months ago to start this podcast, we talked about what the format was going to be and, you know, would we have guests? And I said right away, I said, we got to have Ferrari Man 601. I got to talk to this guy. He's just one of my favorite channels. So thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, it's, it's great to have you here. Um I just want to talk a bit about your channel. Um, it, it looks like it goes way, way back. I think I saw somewhere that it was 2009 or something like that you, that you started this channel. So obviously one of the longer running sim racing channels. Can you talk to us a bit about uh, where the channel started and, and how it sort of evolved into what it is now? Well, Mike and Davey, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. And thank you very much for those accolades. Not sure I deserve them, but they're appreciated nonetheless. Ferrari Man 601, you're right. It started in 2009. Actually, it started in June of 2009. So we're coming up on nine years of having Ferrari Man 601. The origins of the channel, they actually go back a little bit farther than that. I had uh, my first YouTube channel was actually called Ferrari Man 60. And uh, that was up from 07 to the mid part of 2009 and uh, that channel was banned because what I was doing was as some people do nowadays is I was posting real world Formula One content on boards things like that and obviously I got myself banned for it lesson learned I'm not doing that anymore <laughs> but um, the name of the channel actually came from that um, that 2007 attempt it was the 60th anniversary of Ferrari in 2007 so that's where the 60 comes from 601 obviously well what's next in the sequence Six that's how it uh, came about. So the numbers really don't have any significance in terms of the name of the channel. Uh, in terms of why I started it, sim racing for me, I've been involved in sim racing in some form for a very long time. I've uh, been listening to some of the other guests that you've had on this podcast previously, and uh, everybody talks about Gran Turismo as being one of their first introductions into sim racing. And for me, it's exactly the same. Started with me on the PlayStation 1 all the way back in 1999 with Gran Turismo 2. I saw this very strange looking double CD case in the PlayStation section of uh, one of the uh, chain stores around here. And I uh, said, you know what, this looks interesting. Let's give it a try. I played it, and the first time I played it, I was thinking, what is this? I have no idea what I'm doing. It's not at all easy, but I was attracted to it because, well, I was driving cars that I was seeing on the street every day. So I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe this is how cars actually feel. And it all started from there. I became very adept at Gran Turismo 2, and of course, as uh, consoles started to evolve a little bit more, I continued in the Gran Turismo series with 3 and 4 and GT4 in particular was, I think, the the biggest introduction for me in terms of how cars actually were. That game had a thousand cars on it, all kinds of tracks, both fictional and real world, and uh, the the degree of customization that you could get into, the degree of car setup, things like that. Just a huge learning experience. At the same time, in the real world, I've been working on cars, real cars, since I was about five years old. So I've always been around cars for my entire life. I've always been very intimate with how they operate, how you have to work on them. And of course, later in life, learning how to drive them as well. So I've always had a very strong, intimate connection with cars, both in the real world and of course, in the entertainment business there. Um, later on, when we started to get some better computer equipment, I made the change over from consoles to PC, and my first PC sim was R-Factor, and that's basically where we start with Ferrari Man 601. You'll see uh, some of my earliest videos are R-Factor videos. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, and uh, it's it's amazing. I, I see some parallels between R-Factor and Assetto Corsa as well in terms of uh, it's sort sure. of being ro robust because uh, R-Factor is still, it, it, it's very, very small. Small, but it does still have a following primarily for its mods is what I notice. And, and uh, you know, I think Assetto Corsa will continue with that as well because there's so many fantastic mods for Assetto Corsa. So, um, and by the way, great to hear that you're a Gran Turismo guy as well. I think we're three for three, Davey, on guests starting with Gran Turismo. So Sounds I think, like uh, 
Polyphony Digital should uh, be an unofficial sponsor for this podcast, but uh, we'll wait for the check. Um, <laughs> we'll send them a nice letter. Yeah, that's right. So for our event, you're, uh, I think at this stage, your your channel is known to most of us as, as, as an open wheel, hot lapping um, um, channel. You you sometimes put out multiple videos per day. You know, the F310, I think, was what you were running yesterday. And, uh, you know, you're, you're a big supporter of the Formula Hybrid and the SF70H. Uh, you did a lot of hot lap videos there. But you're also very diverse. Your channel is... Uh, is is bringing in in terms of overall content you do your f1 commentary which i think is fantastic um i, I think you sunk the titanic this morning or yesterday <laughs> that was fascinating <laughs> by the way yeah, that was absolutely was fascinating, fascinating. i'll yeah. ask you for that and i think I, the go ahead mike oh i was just gonna say i, I went back a few years and if I'm not mistaken, you also explored the physics of a space shuttle disaster. Is that right? <laughs> that's uh, yeah, that's somewhat true. Yes. Uh, yes. I, I okay. Uh, the channel, I think, it's indicative of just most of my interests, just as a person. I'm a, I'm the kind of person who is always curious. Everything in the world fascinates me no matter what it is it could be the most complicated thing or the most mundane thing but i want to understand what it is and why it does what it does and it's 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 just the sort of mind that i have i'm very inquisitive i want to understand as much as i can about as many things as i can and i think the content on the channel sort of reflects that to some degree anyway that's awesome that's awesome but is is the focus these days um primarily these hot laps or is there something kind of brewing behind the scenes or, or what are you focusing on primarily for the most part, the channel has no grand plan. I started it basically because when it came to R Factor, when it came to trying to become better at sim racing, one of the things that I noticed immediately was the replay system that R Factor had. And by watching my own replays of my own runs, I was able to see, okay, where did I mess up? Where did I get things right? How could I go faster? And the replay became a very valuable tool for me to learn what I was doing so that I could try to avoid repeating the same mistakes as well as trying to reproduce those moments that went well. And the side effect of that was I noticed that a lot of those replays looked really cool. So, hmm, if I like watching these, maybe other people will like watching them too. And that's really where it all started. In terms of the focus of the channel, as I said, there really is no master plan. I started it basically as an experiment. Well, if I think this looks cool, maybe other people will as well. That's awesome. That's awesome. And we do enjoy it. And uh, like I said, your F1 live commentary is is so good. Um, I tell anybody who will listen that they should tune into that because I generally will mute the live feed and just listen to you because I think your commentary is just so cool. So cool. And uh, for those wishing to join, um, I think you pretty much do every race at this point. Is that right? For the most part, sometimes it's difficult to do it just in terms of logistics. Sometimes the races are on very early in the morning for me, like one or two o'clock in the morning. So sometimes, depending on what's going on in the house, I can't obviously be screaming at the top of my lungs at two o'clock in the morning. But for the most part, I try to commentate every Grand Prix. That's awesome. That's awesome. And um, so there's no grand plan for the channel. That's that's cool. But um, do you think you will primarily stick with Assetto Corsa uh, for the coming weeks, months, years. I mean, they're, they're, the big one on the horizon is, is Assetto Corsa Competition, but that's going to be a GT3 sim, and I know that's maybe something you enjoy, but not something the channel really focuses on. Um, so do you intend to stick with Assetto Corsa, or do you think Assetto Corsa Competition would be something you'd be interested in featuring on your channel? For the most part, the reason why I feature Assetto Corsa so much is because it does everything that I want to be able to do in a sim. It has very good physics. It has very good content in terms of cars and tracks. And, of course, it also has the very large modding community. And many people who are producing content in that modding community are extremely good at what they do. So we're not short on content in Assetto Corsa. We've got a good physics model. And... Most importantly for me, I think, in the sorts of videos I make is that it's got a great replay system and it's got great cameras and great sounds and things like that. And all of those are elements that I want to, to, to continue to incorporate in my videos. It was also the reason why I used R-Factor so much. It was a great sim with a great basic physics model in there. And then it had a huge modding community and it still does to some extent today. And uh, really, it's that replay content that is so important in most of my videos. So for the moment, I think Assetto Corsa is going to be featuring a lot 
uh, still in my channel. Competizione, of course, is coming out uh, later on in the summer, and I'll definitely be taking a look at that. I don't think you could be a sim racing YouTuber and, and ignore Competizione, even though it's going to be a very different sort of game, I think, from Assetto Corsa as we now know it, not only because of the content focus, but it's going into a completely new engine architecture. Uh, it's going to have a completely different physics model. We're going to have day-night cycles, weather, and all of these are things that definitely warrant investigation from my side of the world. So I'm going to be featuring that as well. I don't know how big of a place it will have in terms of sort of anchor content on the channel, but it'll definitely be there for sure. In addition to that, F1 2018 is going to be there as well. So F1 2018, is that something you're interested in? I know, um, I think going back, you, you do run F1 2017 uh, somewhat often on the channel these days. Um, but I know you and I have sort of agreed that the drivability of the cars in F1 2017 compared to, for example, the SF70H and Assetto Corsa is maybe not there. And then especially if you get into, um, you know, the classic cars from F1 2017. 17, uh, the classic F1 cars, that is, um, you know, I think arguably ASR formula and VRC has, you know, done a better job of creating these cars in a Seto Corsa. So does F1 2018 still interest you or are you looking forward to it? Do you think there's things they will sort of uh, improve upon from 2017 to make things better? I am looking forward to it, but um, I, I think that I learned my lesson from 2017 because I know that I've I've got on the record of being very critical of the physics model in there. But I think we've got to look at it with, with a different lens, if you will, because what Codemasters have to do with that game is they have to appeal to a very wide range of audience. They have to appeal to people who are diehard Formula One fans, who know the history of the sport, who know how the cars operate, who know what a car should feel like, and they have to try and make it convincing enough to satisfy those people but at the same time, those people are a relatively small contingent of their overall audience because they're releasing this game on pretty much every platform that's out there. They're on PS4, they're on Xbox, they're on PC, obviously. And they have to make something that's a cogent and coherent experience on all of those platforms and also to cater to all the different skill levels and levels of interest that the audience is going to have. Most people in their audience are not looking for a hardcore sim. They're looking for something that's going to look somewhat similar to what they see on television, and they don't want to be overly frustrated while they're playing the game because then they'll just play it once and they'll never play it again, and they'll have buyer's remorse about it. So in terms of, a, of an entertainment product, what Codemasters have done with the F1 series, particularly since 2017, and uh, I have to assume that the direction they went in for 2017 is basically going to be continued in 2018. And so far from what we know about it, it seems like that's correct. I, I think that it does a fair job of bridging that gap between a hardcore sim and a more casual type game. If you want really convincing driving dynamics, it's not the game for you. At the same time, though, it is bringing you the content of the current Formula One season. It's bringing you some classic cars. It's bringing you all the tracks. So it has a place in the market, but a hardcore sim, it most definitely is not. In its defense, they never marketed it as such. Yeah, true, true. And I'd agree with that. And it is bridging that gap. It's something I would kind of hope they would do, a direction they could go, is the same thing. Um, I guess it was Codemasters as well, Dirt 4. They basically had a toggle that said, do you want realistic physics or do you want you know beginner physics? But I get that that would be very very hard in the formula one world you'd have to you know do twice the programming so perhaps that's not something they want to explore but uh yeah i'm with you on that i i think i'll check it out as well f1 2018 I, again if you kind of suspend your uh, expectations of it being you know the most accurate sim and you just enjoy it as you know okay the graphics look nice the tracks are all there. Um, you know, there's an in-depth career mode. I, I think there's, you know, definitely appeal to uh, to F1 2018. And I think it drops in August. So we will know in a few months. Um, and, and speaking of F1, um, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the real life F1 because, as I mentioned, you do the live commentary and it's obviously something that's, you know, a big part of your sort of racing life. Can you talk to us about the season? And 
and how things are going because something I'm noticing and I, I've only been sort of back on the F1 scene for a few years, but it's very much a, um, I guess, three horse race at this point, Mercedes, Ferrari, Red Bull. Um, there doesn't seem to be many surprises. Like I don't even really watch qualifying anymore because it seems like every qualifying session is going to end up with, you know, Vettel or Ham excuse me, Vettel or Hamilton on top. Uh, last week it was Ricardo, fair enough. But uh, it just seems like the field has sort of narrowed to a, a, a three-dog fight, a three-horse race, whatever your analogy you want to use. Is there sort of any more depth to F1 than that? Or is it just, you know, so much based on technology that it's not open to real competition anymore? That's a very interesting question. Uh, is there more depth to Formula One nowadays? I mean, uh, the simple answer is yes, of course there is. It, Formula One is a very complex entity. You have a sporting contest on, in one side of it. You have a, a technical arms race in another side of it. And that's always been that, that marriage of athleticism and technology. That's always been the, the two primary elements that comprise the Formula One World Championship. However, I, I'll go out on a limb here, and maybe this will garner some reaction from the audience, but uh, I'll say, Mike, that you're being a little bit gracious in calling Formula One a three-horse race. I would be more inclined to call it a one-and-a-half-horse race, particularly mm. since 2014. Obviously, Mercedes have been winning pretty much everything every weekend, and that's we're now in the fourth year of pretty obvious Mercedes dominance. In 2018, basically, we have Mercedes. They're clearly the front runners to win both championships again. And Ferrari is there on a good day. Red Bull gets there when they get lucky, as they did in Monaco for a couple of different reasons, obviously, with Ricardo's engine problem earlier on in the race. But Formula One is at a very critical time if it wants to survive for too much longer. There has been so much of an emphasis, particularly in the last four or five years, on the engine technology in Formula One, and not just what the engines are and what they do, but the overall impact that the engines have on politics, basically. Jean Tut becoming the president of the FIA, obviously he did miraculous things with Ferrari back in the 90s and 2000s, but since Jean Tut has been in charge of the FIA, we've seen Formula One almost put the racing as a side note to the overall agenda that Formula One is trying to push. Formula One is trying to push Two things, road relevance and environmental consciousness. I'm not sure about how the other people out there feel, but when I think about motor racing, I'm not thinking about road cars, nor am I thinking about taking care of the trees. I want to see cars that are fast, look good, sound great, and produce good racing. And to be completely honest with you, I haven't seen the sort of wheel-to-wheel -wheel action on a consistent basis in Formula One since maybe 2004. Now, people will say, well, hold on a second, Ferrari was winning everything in the uh, early 2000s, but I'll go out there and say those cars were far more interesting than the ones that are running today. First of all, they looked better. Secondly, they had V10 engines and they sounded like nothing else on the planet. Nowadays, you watch a Formula One race, you watch a Formula One onboard, you see the driver sitting in there, he's just turning the wheel once to go in and out of every corner. Every once in a while, there's a little moment of a slight twitch of opposite lock because he went in a little bit too fast for the several thousand pounds of downforce the cars have. But for the most part, the drama's all gone. We know who's going to win pretty much 95% of the time whenever you turn on the TV uh, during a race weekend. And ultimately, we know what the outcome of the championship is going to be. It's going to be Hamilton and it's going to be Mercedes again. Not to really um, take away from what Mercedes have been able to achieve, because obviously the cars that they've been building are spectacularly good. And that comes from their engine uh, side, that comes from their hybrid powertrain side, that comes from their aerodynamic side and not trying to detract from their achievements. But at the same time, are we turning on the TV to watch uh, a technical demonstration or are we turning on the TV to watch racing? And I think Formula One needs to decide what it wants to be at this point. Is it a racing series or is it a showcase for, for really high tech stuff? Right, right. And it, it, it's interesting to hear you say that because, you know, off, off the top, we talked about how you, you're, and, and I think you and I have a sort of similar mind in this fashion. We like to sort of pick things apart and see how they work. And that's actually the, the hybrid era at the expense of sound has really intrigued me about Formula One because I find it amazing that they're squeezing a thousand horsepower out of, uh, you know, a 1.6 liter engine effectively. Um, you know, it has the the hybrid system and, of course, a turbo and, and whatever else. But um, 
I, I find it fascinating. I really do. And it, it appeals to, and I've said this in the past on the podcast, it appeals to the nerd in me. It, it really does. Like, uh, I, I love the fact that they're pushing technology so, so far. And if it is under the guise of environmentalism or whatever else, I think there is, you know, a technological win there that, again, appeals to sort of the, the nerd side of me. And, you know, it's, it's just fantastic engineering. So it's interesting to hear you say that uh, you don't really enjoy that. Is, is it primarily the sound that puts you off the engine or or what is it i mean the the engines themselves all powertrain technology it is absolutely miraculous what they're able to do with getting 850 900 horsepower out of 1.6 liters and then you add the uh the turbo on it and then obviously the hybrid system so i would venture to say the mercedes and the ferrari and possibly the red bull as well they're generating well over a thousand horsepower hybrid and internal combustion engine combined and from that side of the world, yeah, it is extremely interesting to see what they were able to do. But the other, the other part of my, my nerd side is looking back to the 1980s when we had turbo engines with similar displacements. And I, and I remember the BMW four-cylinder getting 1,200 horsepower in qualifying or, uh, or, or the Honda engine sometimes being able to push out 1,400 horsepower in qualifying. I, um, there's a great video out there of Gerhard Berger in the Benetton at uh, Adelaide in 1986. He's running 1,400 horsepower <laughs> at five and a half bar boost. <laughs> so that's, that was 1986. And we had these low displacement engines, twin turbos back then, obviously, but they're generating 1,400 horsepower. That's over 30 years ago. So to see Formula One basically in the same territory using completely different technology, but getting the same result, at least in terms of engine output, I don't see that as progress necessarily. I see it certainly as, as a very valuable way for, for the manufacturers, namely Mercedes and Ferrari, to test technologies that maybe later on they want to introduce on the road. And we are seeing road cars starting to generate things that are similar to the KERS uh, systems that we see in Formula One now. But at the same time, it is to the expense of, of the overall atmosphere. It is to the expense of the excitement that the cars generate. The cars sound closer to diesel locomotives than they do race cars. And, <laughs> and for me, that is a big turnoff. It really is. They're not that loud. They don't rev that high. One of the things that really annoys me when we watch the TV coverage is um, when, when we see the overlay graphics with the tachometer, it goes up to 15,000 RPM because that's where the red line is per the regulations. But the teams are barely hitting 12,000 RPM because of the fuel flow limits. So it, it just seems to me that Formula One, it sets itself up always for something that's very interesting, very intriguing, and very spectacular. And then through line item veto, basically, through the regulations that get passed over the years, it, it just restricts itself needlessly. We saw this in 2005 as well, the last year for the V10s. The engines were tremendous. They were revving to 19,000, 20,000 RPM. They're also generating 1,000 horsepower out of three liters back then. But they tell the teams, oh, you can only use one set of tires for qualifying in the race. So the cars are slowed down. 2007 as well. Okay, well, we're going to put a rev limit on the V8 engines as it was back then. And we're going to have a controlled tire. It's going to be harder. The cars are going to be slower. I, I don't really understand why Formula One sets itself up for greatness. And then it just completely removes that potential. 2017 again with the aero changes that we had. The cars were the fastest we had seen since 2004, 2005. They were brilliant. And now for 2018, we, we have Halo, which in my opinion, it completely spoils the visual appearance of the cars, both externally and from the onboard cameras. And now for 2019, they're chopping up the front wings again. The cars are going to be maybe three seconds a lap slower. So you make all this progress. You make all of this monetary and technological investment to, to give us a faster package, to give us a more aesthetically pleasing package. And then you only let it work for a year or two before you completely change it again. You, you can never allow Formula One to to make any sort of real meaningful progress if every year you're changing the regulations. Right, right, yeah. And it, it's tough, it's tough. Like, uh, again, I love Formula One. One and uh, I enjoy it, but again, it's just not competitive. And I think that sort of the proof of, in the proof is in the pudding moment for me is Fernando Alonso, because when you talk about and you can rank him wherever you want in sort of the all-time best Formula One drivers, but there's no doubt he's he's quite high up there. This is he's a fantastic Formula One driver who now has a tough time cracking the top ten. And you can't tell me that his skills as a driver have declined that sharply. I mean this. 
is a guy who just lives for racing. He does Le Mans. He does Indy. And he's so good. But again, just due to, I, I guess it's regulations. Well, not regulations, but I guess, you know, car technology. He's with the, you know, McLaren team and they just do not have a competitive car. And so he has a tough time cracking the top 10. So, you know, if you were a fan of Fernando Alonso or, you know, me wanting to support Canadians and wanting to support Lance Stroll, I mean, what am I going to buy a Lance Stroll shirt? Because... <laughs> Like it, it's tough to be a Lance Stroll fan because he's he's going to be 19th or 20th running car guaranteed. You know, it's it's just progressed to that. So I, I want to ask you if you if you got nominated as as you know president of the FIA, what would you change in Formula One? Does this come back come back to you know doing a better job of homologating the specs of the cars or what direction would you if it was up to you? What direction would you take Formula One to make it more competitive and open up that field and bring the fans into support kind of the lesser known drivers how, how would you change things if it was up to you i've always had the thought that if if it were a perfect world and i'm the emperor of formula one if you will what i would do is basically i would reset the rule book to 1994 and let it just happen all over again organically because what we had back in in 94 we had three different types of engines running at the same time out on track you had v8s v10s and v12s out there you had uh, some of the teams actually all the teams back then they had flat bottoms they didn't have the legality plank that's there to control the ride height and things like that they're creating tremendous amounts of downforce with the under tray yet the top side arrow was very simple you didn't have all the turning vanes and flow modifiers that you see on the cars nowadays you had a, a simple single plane front wing and a simple single plane rear wing and the cars are able to follow very closely nose to tail obviously you, you can't talk about 1994 and those regulations without talking about what happened at Imola that year but I would venture to say that the way the cars were built had nothing to do with what happened at Imola I would say that that was just a tremendous example of terrible luck and everything that could go wrong did go wrong but you had cars that could follow closely nose to tail back then and Formula One hasn't had that since I'm not a I'm not an engineer by any means, but if the cars could do it back then and they looked like this, if you made the cars look like that again with similar aerodynamic properties, they're going to be able to follow closely nose to tail. So basically, that's what I would do. Let's reset the rule book to about 1994 or so with some caveats, of course. We want to keep uh, the, the circuits similar to the way they are, ma mainly because of the barriers. Um, we don't want drivers going into unprotected concrete walls or things like that, but for the most part, reset the rule book. Keep the cockpit penetration panels there. Keep the tire barriers there. Keep those water-filled Tech Pro barriers there because obviously we want to keep people as safe as we reasonably can. But reset the rule book. Let the engineers play again. But at the same time, have some clearly defined standards in terms of what you can and cannot do. If we know that heavy topside arrow makes it difficult for the cars to follow nose to tail, put all of these winglets on the cars don't let them make these tremendously complicated front wings that need like a perfect laminar flow coming into them at a specific ambient temperature with the air density the way it is to, in order to work in optimal conditions because you're never going to have optimal conditions out there let's give the cars flat bottoms at very least if not give them some underbody tunnels with bigger diffusers so we can get ground effect going on maybe let's use skirts like they used in the 1980s let's make the cars much more dependent on underside arrow than topside arrow that's going to mostly solve the problem with following nose to tail look at indycar right now with the ir18 that's a ground effect car for the most part yeah it's got topside arrow but it's not all that important as you saw at Indianapolis, those guys are doing 225 miles an hour through the corners with basically no wing on the car because they've got a lot of under tray going on. It works. They're able to follow closely nose to tail. Formula One, it was like that. It can be like that again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's great. And I, I agree with all those points. Um, hopefully they get something resolved soon. I think DRS was an attempt at that. But um, obviously that's having minimal effect on the sort of uh, overall rankings of F1 teams and, and drivers. But uh, I want to shift it back kind of to the positive and uh, just talk a bit more about uh, the, the driving technique. Now, we've seen you in the VRC hot lap tournaments. We've seen you, um, again, run run hot laps quite frequently on your channel. And you put in some absolutely blistering times. I've, I've tried to enter those VRC tournaments, but my times have been so embarrassingly far behind you that I didn't even post the video. So um, I did 
did want to talk to you about uh, driving technique. And uh, I, I noticed that when you put the pedal app on your screen um, in a set of Corsa, we can see you rapidly tapping the gas when you go around a corner. Where did that technique come from? And uh, can you explain a little bit more about how it works? Well, the uh, first part of the answer is that the technique came out of nowhere. It was a completely organic thing that I developed on my own. Where I think it originates is going back to my first days in sim racing of any kind, back on PlayStation 1 with Gran Turismo 2. Obviously, you're playing with a controller there. And back in the late 90s, we didn't have things like potentiometers and whatever in the controller. So you're just hitting a button and it's either on or off. So one of the things that I developed in the Gran Turismo days was you have to tap at the throttle very rapidly because it is either 100% or zero. So to try and give me some semblance of modulation through the corners, I would just hit that button really fast. And uh, I actually remember watching my own telemetry traces from Gran Turismo to watching that action happen and being impressed in terms of, wow, I can actually do that pretty fast. When I came to uh, PC Sims and I started to play with an actual wheel and pedal setup, that technique just seamlessly migrated its way over into doing it with my right foot instead of my right thumb. And it's just something that's continued all the way since. Now, of course, later on, as I became a Formula One fan and started to educate three of the sport, it was only then that I realized that, oh, wait, Ayrton Senna actually did something extremely similar to what I do. And my technique developed organically before I knew about Senna, who he was and, and everything that he did, certainly before I knew about how he drove. And I think because my technique and his technique obviously developed independently for different reasons, I think uh, I might be able to shed some, some light on it. For me, the reason why I do it is, and I'll tell you where I do it first of all, most of the time it is in high-speed corners. And uh, by high-speed corners, I mean things that you're approaching um, usually without a downshift where you're just breathing off the throttle and then throwing it in toward the apex. I mean, tracks like Silverstone, for example, you'll see um, you'll see Stowe Corner at the end of the hangar straight. That's one really hot spot where you might see me doing this from time to time. It is an absolute obsessive compulsion and compulsive control of weight transfer around a car. Obviously, as you throw the car into a corner, you're going to get weight shifting laterally to the left or to the right, depending on the direction of the corner. You're also going to get front to rear weight transfer. And obviously, what, what your aim is through a high-speed corner is you want to keep, for example, through Stowe, it's a right-hand corner, you want to keep the weight just sort of on that balance point on the left rear tire, because that's where all of the grip is going right there. So, what I'm doing with that throttle blipping technique is I am very finely adjusting the center of gravity in the car as I'm going around the corner. The second part of it is you want to get on the throttle again as quickly and as early as possible. And for me, the only way I can know when it's safe to get back on full power is to keep testing the limits and say, all right, is it sliding? Is it sliding? No. Okay, full throttle. And, and ultimately, I, I, I've developed the ability to, to be able to make those mental calculations that fast. If you take a look at the right, telemetry, right. And, uh, yeah, look at it. Look at it in slow motion. You'll see sometimes I'm hitting that pedal eight to ten times per second. So that's how <laughs> fast the information is coming to me. That's incredible. That's incredible. And you, and you said you mentioned, or excuse me, you mentioned that uh, you saw Senna doing it. Um, now, if I'm assuming that if I try this in a in a road car in in my daily passenger car, that it'll just sort of take the uh, aggregate and just kind of give me a little bit of acceleration but it, it, it on the technical side is there throttle linkage in modern formula one cars that could accommodate that technique too or was that something that was unique to uh you know late 80s early 90s f1 cars that's an interesting question and i've tested this in road cars as well it it does matter whether you have a physical linkage between the pedal and the throttle, so a throttle cable or some sort of physical mechanical link, or it's a fly-by-wire setup. If you try this in a car with a fly-by-wire setup, a road car anyway, it's not going to work. Um, my daily driver's got a fly-by-wire throttle. If I try to hit that throttle 10 times a second, it's just going to raise the revs linearly as if I had just hit the pedal once and held it there. In a Formula One car, I would definitely assume that their potentiometer and their servos actuating the throttles are much faster than the ones in most road cars. So I would think that this would work in a modern Formula One car. 
But because the, the way the modern cars are, they have such a long wheelbase and they're actually quite heavy as well. They're so dependent on the downforce and, and the mechanical grip going through that tire contact patch that I don't think there's really that many moments of getting these little micro slides through the corners because one of the other reasons that I do it is it's, it's probably undetectable, particularly from the external cameras, but whenever I'm in a high-speed corner, the rear end is ever so slightly breaking traction. So it, it sort of has a double effect of I'm, I'm trying to keep the weight balance over that left rear tire if we're talking about stow corner. And I'm also trying to arrest these tiny, tiny slides that are coming in that you probably can't even see. So, so it's kind of a traction control effect as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, and I want to talk a bit like obviously you have some pretty nice gear in order to pull something like that off. I don't know if uh, – you know, all pedals would have the freedom of travel to allow you to, uh, you know, modulate it 10 times a second. What kind of gear are you running? I'm running a Thrustmaster TSPC. Uh, so that's the servo base. And I've got most of the uh, the rims in the Thrustmaster ecosystem uh, for the modern F1 car. So from the uh, mid 90s on to the present day, I've got the Ferrari F150 F1 wheel, which is a great rim. It, it does everything you need it to do. It feels great. It's got enough buttons for you to make all the adjustments that you need. In addition to that, I've got the uh, the Ferrari 599 Alcantara rim that I'll use for most of the road cars or uh, GT cars, things like that. The older open wheelers as well. That's great. Of course, I've got the TSPC rim that came with the wheel setup, and I've Which also got the Ferrari rim. Challenge yeah. rim as well. Yep, that's uh, that's. Uh, would you call it a GT style? Or I you think call it's it an open yeah. wheel style. Sorry, yeah, it, it looks like the IndyCar rim almost. Yeah, it's kind of a. It's an. Is it? It's. I think it's branded an F1 style rim. Is it so? How does it go? It 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 looks more like an F1 rim than anything else. I yeah, mean, obviously, that's true. a lot of the modern yeah. GT cars have F1 style yeah. steering wheels as well. But uh, yeah, it, the, it looks um, more close to the uh, IndyCar rim. That's true. I have the. I have a T300 with the Alcantara, the Ferrari replica wheel. Yep. And then the TSPC comes with this F1 style wheel and, and no pedals, so I'm familiar. But that's a very nice base. So it's a lot more powerful than the T300 and, and it has better cooling as well. So. Yep, it's got a fan in there. It's always running and sometimes it uh, does get pretty hot, but the fan keeps things cool. Pedal side, I'm running the uh, T3PA Pro. Uh, so they're pretty good. And uh, I've also got the TH8A shifter, so all Thrustmaster gear in there as well. I started with uh, a Logitech G25, which actually ran for about 10 years, and then I got uh, a G27 as well toward the end there. But uh, the Thrustmaster gear was definitely a step up, and I'm very happy with it. It does everything I needed to do. It's, it's very obviously working for you. Yeah. Um, and what about uh, in terms of your, your visuals? Do you run VR, triples, single screen? My setup is pretty basic. I'm just running a single screen on a, an old monitor. It's because uh, I, I, I don't really want to throw all that much money at this because I've just got other things in real life that I that I would rather do. But um, it's a yeah, it's a really basic setup. Just running a single screen. It's uh, I think it's an 18 or 21 inch monitor. So that's what everything is coming off of. So that's my visual reference. I would like to be able to run VR. I would need to upgrade the uh, GPU a bit if I really wanted to make it work well. I do have an Oculus headset, uh, but when I bought it, I figured that uh, all my system specs would be set for it to go, but I found out later on that they just aren't. So I need to upgrade the GPU to make that work to have any chance of getting, for example, a Sato Corsa to run in it. But that's something that I definitely want to do. Just at this time, it's still a work in progress. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not a, a cheap upgrade to VR. The the GPU prices are finally falling, but it's still, yes. you know, in the for a, for a decent card, you're still looking at four to five hundred dollars US. So, I hear you there. Bigger priorities in life. Um, and and, and talking a little bit about that single screen, and and I, I want to know, 
you put out a, a, a ton of content. Like I'm, I'm always just blown away by the fact that I keep getting these, you know, notifications on my phone, you know, uh, new video from Ferrari Man 601 and sometimes multiple videos per day. What is, you must have it pretty dialed in. So what is sort of the process? Like, do you uh, think of an idea as you're having your morning coffee and think, you know, I want to drive the, you know, formula hybrid at spa and then just jump in, press record, do a few laps yeah. and then upload? It, it or? Is- it is basically like that. Um, like I said, there really is no master plan for, for the content that's out there. I actually don't have all that much free time day to day. So most of the videos that you'll see going up, they're they're all recorded at more or less the same time. So it's uh, they're on staggered uh, scheduled uploads on YouTube is the way that you can set it up. So they're all pre-recorded for the most part, and they'll go up whenever I say that they're going to go up. So um, sometimes uh, you'll see I'll have a run where at least one video is going up every day, um, and sometimes that's a little bit too much because then I'll see the views drop, so then I'll back off for a few days or a week or so, and then I'll go back into some sort of a cadence with the uploads. It is all very variable, and there really is no higher aspect of planning to it, which uh, maybe could be one of my downfalls, but really that's how it works. In terms of the timeline of getting, for example, a hot lap video up, Obviously, you've got to you've got to drive the laps. You've got to record it. You have to edit it and render it, and then upload it. I would say if everything goes according to plan, the total production time for the average hot lap video, which is maybe ten to fifteen minutes long, it's about two to two and a half hours from start to finish, and then uh, uploading. But for the longer review pieces that I do, sometimes those can take several days just in just in the the shooting part of it. So obviously, I'm doing commentary for it. I'm doing the visual content, driving the car. We're doing uh, hot lap replays. Um, the Porsche video, for example, the uh, review piece that I did, that took me five days to do from start to finish. Um, and that was including writing some music for it as well. So sometimes it can be a pretty labor intensive thing, but really it's just, it comes down to what do I want to make on any given day? And then I, uh, I just make it happen. That's great. That's great. But you're enjoying uh having your channel at this stage everything's positive yeah i would say for the most part everything is positive i never really had any aspirations in terms of making it big as they say um we hit we had 3800 subscribers yesterday actually so that that's always good to see and i do appreciate the support from everyone but I know what it would take to make the channel bigger in terms of the kinds of content that I would have to be able to make and and when I would have to be uploading. I just don't have the facility to do that right now. And it comes down to software limitations, hardware limitations, and just time limitations. Like I know, for example, that VR content would be huge. I know that if I were able to do more feature pieces with with reviews, particularly with VR, I know that that would be huge. I know that if I could get some better visuals going on, I know that if I could get bumper music in there, I know that it would have a, a wider appeal to a wider audience. But it's I'm limited in terms of the time that I have available and the tools that I have available. So it's it's always been a compromise from day one in terms of what can I actually do versus what do I want to do. And uh, it's it's a happy medium between all of that. If in the future I either have more time to work on it or I get some better equipment, we'll see what sort of content comes along. Also, in terms of new software that we get with AC Competizione coming out, with uh, F1 2018 coming out, with iRacing always improving all the time, that's going to dictate the direction that I go. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, as a fan, I would say don't change anything. Anything. I really, uh, like I said, I enjoy your content a lot. So just keep doing what you're doing. I and uh, yeah, yeah. And with that in mind, um, I just want to say one final thank you so much for being here. It's It's been great talking to you. And um, yeah, let's see, we have the Canadian Grand Prix coming up in about a week's time. Um, anything else you want to plug on your channel? Uh, other than we're going to be doing live commentary, of course, uh, for the Canadian Grand Prix. Uh, Montreal is actually one of my favorite circuits on the calendar. So, it, And it always gives us an interesting race. If you remember the four hours of Canada back in 2011, Jensen <laughs> Button going from last to first to last again to first again. That was ridiculous. So Canada <laughs> is always a very interesting race. I always very much look forward to it. And also, it's it's the first North American race of the season. So it's, it's also very nice for me uh, not to have to wake up at four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning to watch the race. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I noticed your 
you did a review of the Racing Studio uh, Formula One Hybrid from 2018, and uh, it was available in 4K. So were you recording in 4K? We are, I'm recording at 1080p uh, at 60 frames a second. I'm yeah. able to render it up to 4K. Oh, really? Uh, most people, right. Most people don't watch in 4K from, from what I'm able to see from my analytics numbers because uh, you got to remember people are watching this on all different platforms. You've yeah. got... Okay. Um, desktop computers and and mobile devices and things like that. So the the 1080p seems to be the most popular format for it. But I'm yeah. capturing at 1080p at 60 frames a second, and I'm and able upscaling. to to render up. Yeah, oh, you don't lose all that much resolution at that point. So it it, okay. it works. Okay. And and are you doing that? Are you finding that your subscribers are asking for that, or what's the, what's the reason behind it? Every once in a while, I do a format change in terms of how the videos are encoded as I, as I get smarter about how my hardware and how my software works. Yeah. Uh, that change happened early last year, going from 1080p up to 4K, because I realized that I, I had the capacity to do it. Yeah. So why not try? I yeah. think probably more important than resolution is the frame rate. So 60 frames a second is the absolute minimum nowadays for yeah. sim racing videos. You need to be able yeah. to see all the, the small movements in the car as you're going around a corner. So you, yeah. you need the frame rate there. Resolution is a, is a little bit secondary. So that's why I think I could get away with the upscaling. I think um, if I remember correctly, Billy Strange is using the same um, wheel setup as you are. And I think maybe even, even if you don't go to VR in the immediate future, perhaps a larger screen, 24 inch, like might kind of get you through just in terms of, I suppose, the experience of day to day racing. Um, I, I've been listening to you guys talking about Formula One. I'm not a big Formula One fan, but it's a fascinating conversation listening to you talking. And one thing occurred to me, you talked about Lewis Hamilton winning all the races. And I recall when Sebastian Ozier was with Volkswagen during the WRC and he was kind of winning everything and everything became kind of stale and kind of predictable. And then Volkswagen pulled out and now he's with, um, he's driving a Ford last time I checked, but I haven't watched it in a while. I've been doing other, other things, but, um, and then it's, I started to think that perhaps the, the Formula One was developed in an era where the engines were bigger. So they're using a style of car and a style of track that is coming from another era, whereas the manufacturers are going for smaller engines with hybrid technology. But they're still running the, the series in the old format, if you know what I mean. So that, I think, like you talked about... Um, having you know the sound of the v, v the v10 and the sound of the roar but the roar of the engines but i i don't think that's ever coming back and i appreciate that if they're going more towards the environment and so i i have i have to respect that but and i also feel that it, at the end of the day the the manufacturers like like mercedes and so on they will go where the industry wants to go so if it's a case of well, smaller engines, petrol, diesel engines with hybrid, that's what they'll have to do. And I guess maybe would they at some point change the format to make the racing more exciting? I don't know, but I guess at the end of the day, their focus will be developing technology that feeds back into their race cars. What do you guys think? It's always a slippery slope when we start to talk about changing the, the fundamental format of Formula One because mm. a, Grand, a Grand Prix race, by definition, at least in terms of how Formula One has always applied it, it's roughly a 300-kilometer race that is run in one segment from start to finish. There's mm -hmm. a standing start, and the cars are fundamentally open wheel and open cockpit. And uh, I think in 2018, we've gotten perilously close to getting rid of the open cockpit side of, of, of the uh, Formula One format. And I think when when you talk to Formula One fans, not only are they interested in what's happening right now, but they're also very well versed in the history of the sport and they have a great appreciation for it. And it's, it's very interesting when you can go back and, and watch old races and you see you see common threads that go throughout history. You could watch a race from the 1970s and, and the general 
complexion of the race, the general procedure that's followed during the race is still more or less the same as it is today. And I know that Formula One fans appreciate that continuity. The things that have always changed in Formula One are the venues, the cars, and the drivers. But the overall essence of it really hasn't changed all that much since the the start of the Formula One World Championship as we now know it uh, in 1950. And even going back before then, the the pre-World War II Grand Prix days. there's There's a continuous lineage that can be traced all the way back to the 1930s to the present day in Formula One. And I know that the fans appreciate that. When they start talking about changing the format of the race weekend or maybe splitting the Grand Prix into two sprint races instead of uh, just a single Grand Prix, that starts to turn people off in a big way because now all of a sudden the environment has changed. And you can no longer go back in history and cross-reference, oh, look at what happened in 1996, for example, and it's still happening today. People would miss that a lot. Yeah. So they're running a very delicate dance in a way between keeping Formula One like Formula One and at the same time trying to implement the technology that they want to develop for the cars that they're manufacturing to run on the road. It's quite interesting. Right. As a final note, um, I watched your um, Wonder of Porsche video and it was lovely. I really enjoyed that. So I'd re- I would recommend people to go look at that. And I also watched your, you had a video on the, uh, mental health awareness weekend and you talked about your grandfather and that was really nice actually really touching um i watched um also aiden's video aiden from the uk talking about the issues that he's been having so i really respect the fact that you put that video up so wanted to um compliment you on that well, thank you for that. And um, for me, mental health and health in general, it's obviously an important subject, but uh, I don't like the attitude that a, a lot of people have around the world when it comes to mental health or any sorts of, of issues that uh, that are not readily apparent. A lot of people go around uh, almost with the belief that, well, if I can't see it, it must not be happening. Mm-hmm. And that's not true. So when I saw Aiden make his video, I wanted to put something out there myself because it's an important issue for me, not only personally in my life, but Everybody I know has had some sort of problem of some kind in their life. And uh, I just wanted people out there to know that, hey, there are other people out there who not only understand what you're going through, but to actually care. Yeah, and I I appreciate the fact that both you and Aiden were very frank about those issues. It's very, very, I respect that very much. So thank you for joining and thank you, Mike. And um I link to your channel and your social media below in the description. And as most people will know, this episode will be available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and there's also an RSS feed. And if you're listening on iTunes or Google Play, we would ask that you rate and review the show and also share with your friends. And another benefit of listening through a podcast service like iTunes is the fact that if something happens with YouTube and you should you should happen to miss the episode appearing in your s- subscription feed, at least you'll be able to see it on iTunes. And if anybody has any questions or comments or suggestions on, on the show format, please um, include them in the description below. We would appreciate that as it helps us develop the show as we go forward. So until next time, Ferrari Man 601, And Mike, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. We'll see you. Bye-bye.